2 Kings 15, these are the words of God. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his father Amaziah had done except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Then Yahweh struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house, and Jotham, king, king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham his son reigned in his place. In the thirty-eighth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zachariah, the son of Jeroboam, died, sorry, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the thirty-ninth year of Uziah, king of Judah. And he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him. And he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tifzah, all who were there and its territory, because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it. All the women there who were with child he ripped open. In the thirty-ninth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Pol, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man fifty shekels of silver, to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers. Then Pekahiah his son reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and reigned two years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, 
He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Ariah. And with him were fifty men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed they, are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned twenty years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, the Lezer, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abel, Beit Meaka, Yanoah, Kadesh, Hazor, <coughs> Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, son of Ramaliah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned <coughs> in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, king, Jotham, the son of Uziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh. He did according to all that his father Uziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Yahweh. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. In those days Yahweh began to send Redson, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. Then Ahaz his son reigned in his place. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Throughout this chapter, we have great uh, stability in Judah for 52 years. Azariah, or Azariah, as Americans say, uh, who is also known by the name Uzziah or Uzziah, is the same king who uh, died in Isaiah 6. And in the year that he died, Isaiah had the vision of the high king on his throne and the seraphim, the, the flame, fire angels, saying, holy, holy, holy. But he reigned 52 years. And in the north, he spanned five, six kings, really, if you count the ones who were on the throne, when he became king and when he, uh, and when he died. 
And although the family of David, the line of David is still on the throne the entire time in the south, and uh, we are interested in them as both the descendants of David and uh, as the seed of the woman. The text keeps telling us who their mothers were, and that their mothers are also from, uh, from Israel. Yet things in the north uh, are extremely chaotic. Uh, we see them continuing to sin. We see uh, several coups, several assassinations uh, in this chapter. Uh, and we see the northern kingdom uh, beginning to be exiled, which will be completed in chapter 17. And so what we see in the north is actually... What we see throughout human history, we see sin and violence, we see chaos, we see one kingdom or dynasty torn down, uh, another one raised up, uh, and even in our own day, we live in a day uh, of comparative chaos and sin, uh, even in the life of our own nation, which at other times has had more out outward conformity to God's law and at other times has had more stability. And so it's helpful to us, whether we're talking about in the church or in the nation, perhaps in the household, sometimes even in our own hearts, when there is this chaos and the sin, to be instructed by Second Kings 15 and to see what the Lord is highlighting. Uh, what is he doing and what are we to think uh, as he does it? behind the scenes uh, of history like this. And the first thing that we are to see is that the word of Yahweh is controlling everything. We already mentioned that the reason that sons of David are still on the thrones in the south is that the Lord had made a promise to them. And we already thought about the fact that this was actually a second promise or third, fourth, fifth. There have been other promises to Abraham and so forth uh, in between. But this is participating in the same promises of the covenant of grace in which the seed of the woman has been promised to crush the serpent's head. But even in the north, we see that the reason that uh, four generations of Jehu's family had followed on the throne of the north was because the Lord had promised that. So verse 12 says, This was the word of Yahweh which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. The Lord keeps his words. The Lord keeps his word. The word of Yahweh kept even wicked kings on the throne because the Lord is faithful to himself, even when no one else is faithful to him. Uh, and so the Lord is faithful to his words of promise. It is sobering, however, for churches and nations that the Lord is faithful to his words of curse. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had capitalized on 
the precedent set by Aaron. And just as Aaron said that he was establishing a feast to Yahweh, Exodus 32, verse 5, uh, and that these uh, the images were images of Yahweh who had delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt and out of bondage. Uh, remember back in 1 Kings 12 uh, that Jeroboam had used this exact same language uh, about the worship that took place, uh, the calf worship. So 1 Kings 12.32 matches almost exactly Exodus 32 verse 5. This we must not think that uh, Jeroboam son of Nebat was setting up Baal worship. He was uh, providing an alternative way of worshiping Yahweh and specifically with the historical acts of the Lord's redemption, his delivering the people from Egypt. It is exactly parallel to when people today say, but shouldn't we celebrate the incarnation? Shouldn't we celebrate the crucifixion? Shouldn't we celebrate the resurrection? And they invent religion uh, by which to worship the Lord. Uh, and this is the sin that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, sinned and caused Israel to sin. He established a feast to Yahweh, 1 Kings 12.32, at altars before bull images, 1 Kings 12.28. And of course, the bull image was also borrowed from, or historical, traditional, established by Aaron at Mount Sinai. He devised holy days from his own heart, 1 Kings 12.33. And that becomes a refrain throughout the history of the Northern Kingdom, uh, and it's mentioned four times in this chapter as things spiral out of control and as the as the exile begins. So God is now doing away with the Northern Kingdom. He's doing away with Israel. Yes, Hesheia is on the throne in verse 30. By the time Hesheia sits on the throne, Israel is not its own kingdom anymore. It's a vassal state. Uh, it's a servant state of Assyria, which was already sort of the case when Menahem taxed the rich to send a thousand talents of silver to Paul, king of Assyria. Uh, so Israel is going to come to its final end in chapter 17, the northern kingdom will. This is exactly what Yahweh had threatened in Deuteronomy 4, 23-28. Moses warned them against man-made religion, and he specifically said Yahweh would scatter them to lands where they would not just use images to worship Yahweh, but they would be forced to worship wood and stone itself. And now dreadfully, after the Lord's marvelous patience and long-suffering, his word of curse has proven true. And so on the one hand, you can look at the promise that was fulfilled to Jehu's family and the Lord's promises are true. But on the other hand, you can look at Deuteronomy 4, 23-28, and what has happened in this chapter and what is going to finish in chapter 17. You say the Lord's threats, the Lord's, the Lord's word of threat or the Lord's word of curse are also true. The Lord is marvelously patient, so we forget that. Second Peter uh, chapter 3. Uh, deals with that. Where is the promise of his coming? Things continue as they have ever since the fathers. 
the Lord Jesus is patient. It was uh, a fairly long time, as far as we think, between when the threats of the lampstand removal in Revelation 2 to 3 were made and when they finally and ultimately happened. And yet the Lord is faithful to his threats and faithful to his curses. We must not mistake the patience of the Lord with us, the long-suffering of the Lord as we sin, for indifference towards that sin or approval of that sin. We must hate what he hates, and we must repent of it, embracing his love who is bearing so patiently with us. Remember the patience and kindness, the forbearance of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And if we don't, we just store up more wrath against the day of wrath. That's what we heard in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. So the first lesson from this chapter was that the Lord is faithful to his word of promise, even to a man and a line like Jehu. The second lesson from this chapter is that the Lord is faithful to his word of curse. So the third lesson, of course, is that the Lord is bringing salvation. Uzziah, Uzziah, Azariah, Azariah, it's all the same, two pronunciations of two different names, uh, gets a lot more written about him in Second Chronicles 26 and about his reign and about how he took upon himself that which belonged only to priests and was struck with leprosy and uh, had to be uh, isolated um, for the last uh, several years of his reign. Uh, his greatest flaw is referred backhandedly, uh, referred to backhandedly in this chapter by the punishment for it uh, in verse 5. Things under him and uh, under Jotham aren't perfect. If you look at verse 4 and the first part of verse 35, uh, they do not uh, do away with the worship of the high places. Uh, and so we can't really say that the great difference between the, the southern kings and the northern kings is how much better they obeyed Yahweh. The reality is that the Lord is bringing salvation. And so we are reminded of David. The text reminds us of David in verse 3, verse 7, verse 34, verse 38. The Lord made a promise to David, just like he had made a promise to Jehu. But the promise that he made to David is the most recent installment in a long line of promises that go back to the garden that was made even in the curse on the serpent before he even uh, told the woman or the man what they would be punished with in Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord's promise to David in Second Samuel 7 was not merely that there would be a few generations of his family on the throne, but that from him would come one whose reign would be forever. And so while we have many lessons, uh, or two big lessons at least, in the Lord's dealing with Israel, it's all set in the context of what the Lord was doing with Judah, what the Lord was doing with the South. And what he's doing still is bringing Jesus, is bringing salvation to sinners, because we are unable to save ourselves. We are sinful, we are unfaithful, even our repentance is incomplete, and the sin that is in it is offensive enough to deserve an eternity of hell. And yet God has committed himself to saving us. So let's pray, confess our sin, 
ask for his help. Lord, we praise you for your marvelous patience. You have saved your people with great acts of redemption. And you alone have given us the right way of remembering you and remembering your salvation in our worship. But like Aaron and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, we are prone both to coming up of our own ways of commemorating your redemptive acts and of continuing the traditions that other men have established. <coughs> and so not only continuing idolatry, but raising the men who have passed the traditions down above our Lord Jesus, who has given us the right way now of worshiping you under him. Your Son, whom you love to glorify, we have despised <coughs> by following that which mere men have given us by way of worshiping you. And so like the five kings and the many generations that have uh, that proceeded from Aaron down to them, your churches today keep persisting in their sin, as if you will never come and remove our lampstands for it. But here we stand before you this morning, considering how richly you have been patient with us, the riches of your forbearance and long-suffering once again. And we ask once again that by your Spirit, your patience, your forbearance, your kindness, would lead us to repentance and faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus, that he would bring reformation to your church, that he would cleanse our hearts from all desire to continue in anything that did not come from him in our worship, in our religion. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. <clears throat> 